A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Napoleon Assist. This episode is a break from the normal schedule and I'm going to grandly call it the bonus episode. Oh yes, I know, I can practically hear your collective ooze of anticipation already, but try to contain your excitement, my friends. In March, I entered into a three-minute thesis competition. I didn't win, but that's not really the point. For those of you who don't know about these, they kind of do what they say on the tin. You take your research and summarise it in 180 seconds, which means you have to put together something fast-paced, engaging, but do it in a way that's clear, informative and relevant when it comes to explaining what the point of your research actually is. Since we're all on lockdown, I thought I'd give you something to while away a bit of time, and which you'll hopefully find interesting, and which will spark some discussions online. So, here we go. For context, my thesis title is Plunder, Provost and Punishment, Discipline under Wellington's Command, 1808 to 1818. The Duke of Wellington declared, It is quite impossible to command a British army under the existing system. We have in the service the scum of the earth as common soldiers. Historians have long debated the truth of that comment, but in the process attention has shifted from the comment's cause, a collapse of discipline amongst Wellington's troops following their victory at the Battle of Victoria. Yet Victoria was no isolated incident. From plundering Portuguese peasants for food to murder and rape at the Siege of Badajoz, the Napoleonic Wars were punctuated with instances where British troops blatantly broke military law. Each instance provoked furious outbursts from Wellington, yet historians have only ever excused soldiers' conduct, never investigating what was actually done to punish those responsible, protect the local population and secure justice for victims. Through the transcription of 9,500 cases amounting to the first comprehensive crime survey ever undertaken for an army of this period, this thesis is revolutionising our understanding of how military justice operated. British military law was a system torn apart by the conflicting priorities of different sections of the army's command structure. At the top, the king and commander-in-chief pushed a humanitarian agenda on punishment practices. By imposing limits on flogging sizes and introducing an intermediate tier of court, the message from above was punish better. Yet generals on the front line had a different philosophy. 
the army issued two million lashes in 11 years, at a time when society underwent a transition from punishment of the body to punishment of the mind through incarceration, the army consistently bucked the wider social trend, flogging three quarters of all those found guilty. The new courts were just used to punish more. A third factor was also at play though. Through a pragmatic system of discretionary justice, officers on the ground consistently circumvented the legal process, not for humanitarian reasons, but to maintain their unit's morale preserve its fighting strength and safeguard its honourable reputation. At a grassroots level, punishments were pardoned. Crimes such as desertion were deliberately tried as simple absence, blind eyes were turned to misconduct and illegal courts were even set up to deal with minor offences like dirtiness and drunkenness. This study is also unlocking our understanding of the army's prosecution priorities. Half of all trials were for desertion or absence without leave, yet army returns indicate that, at worst, Desertion affected 0.015% of troops deployed on active service. Equally intriguing is what is absent from the records, particularly sexual misconduct, with the army trying just two cases of rape. There were five times more convictions for homosexuality. That is a reflection of society, as prosecutions for rape were also Roman civilian courts due to contemporary attitudes towards women. What is clear, then, is that examining plunder the provost and punishment, barely scratches the surface. For some of you, that probably raises as many questions as it answers. In all honesty, I could sit here and talk all day about this, but you'll be relieved to hear that I won't, partly because you'd run away screaming, and partly because I don't want someone to snaffle all of my ideas and turn them into a book before I have the chance to get it to a publisher. There are some things to dwell on, though. Firstly, a couple of technicalities. I talked about this being the first comprehensive crime survey ever undertaken for an army of this period. There isn't actually much work out there that deals with a truly representative sample of courts martial. Arthur Gilbert did some interesting work on the British Army in the mid to late 1700s, and uh, part of Norman Buckley's book, The British Army in the West Indies, does some data analysis on court martials, though I would respectfully disagree with some of his interpretations. When I say comprehensive, though, I need to clarify something. The cases that I've transcribed don't represent every single trial that took place in the army during that period. There were three tiers of court. At the top, you had the general court-martial. That dealt with the most serious cases. At the bottom, you had the regimental court-martials, which were dealt internally within the regiment and were used to try more minor offences. From 1812, though, you have the general regimental court-martial, which was the intermediate tier that I mentioned earlier. My database covers everything that was handled by the General Courts Martial and the General Regimentals Courts Martial between 1808 and 1818. The Regimental Courts Martial are a different story though. For one thing, the data is actually quite fragmented. Uh, the information for Regimental Courts Martial comes from the six monthly inspection returns at the National Archives, and until very late in the period that I'm examining, the returns didn't consistently include trial data. Even then, I had to take a sample of 27 regiments, otherwise I was going to spend the rest of my life transcribing. Realistically, there's probably at least another 11,000 cases just at RCM level that are yet to be uh, written up. One of the big questions in academia, though, is always, so what? Hopefully, some of the reasons why this research is important are quite clear. It's an entirely neglected area. The only work that really looks specifically at military courts during this conflict was a paper by Charles Oman over a hundred years ago. 
In all honesty, analysis of this depth has only really become possible within the last 20 years, thanks to advances in technology making the data collection and analysis feasible. But that doesn't actually answer the, well, why should we care question. We should care because understanding what the army was doing about crime has the potential to completely change how we think about the army as an operational unit. I would suggest that the obvious anger of Wellington has actually distracted us from the reality, which is far more complex than has ever been recognised. This isn't a binary system. It's not a game of cat and mouse between commander and commanded. It's a multi-dimensional game of chess, full of judgments, grey areas and moving goalposts, as the reality of what wasn't permissible, or was permissible, compared to what the military law decreed, shifted and moved over time. This work can help us to understand what actually happened in the military justice system, but then exploring the more important question of why it happened in the way that it did helps us to understand how the army actually operated on a day-to-day -day basis, how it bridged seemingly impossible gaps between legal expectation and reality, and how it held itself together on campaign. All of that then taps into a much wider discussion that's going on. Ed Koss's work, All for the King's Shilling, is a really important one here on the role of primary group theory in maintaining army cohesion. He argues that platoon-level camaraderie and mutual support within small, tightly-knit groups meant that soldiers were quite content to plunder and then not report on it, as they all got a cut in return for their silence. If they did complain, they were then ostracised from that group, which meant less access to stolen food that supplemented soldiers' rations. Ed's book also shows how troops were actually woefully underfed. The rations that they were just meant to receive didn't even nutritionally add up to the number of calories that they were burning. When you consider that quite often they didn't even get those rations, the rampant plundering, certainly for subsistence, is much less surprising. Another couple of books that I'd strongly recommend on primary group theory are Ilya Berkovich's Motivation in War and Michael Hughes's Forging the Grand Armée. So definitely have a read of those if you can get hold of them. Uh, and for an interesting counterpoint to that primary group theory line of thinking, try Andrew Bamford's very engaging Sickness, Suffering and the Sword. That's it for your bonus episode. Not much of a bonus, I know, because it was fairly brief. But if you're stressing about what you're going to fill your time with, then do not fear, as another episode is due out very soon on the aftermath of the Siege of Badahoff. I'm sure there'll be questions on this. It's often a topic that people want to hear a little bit more about. So in the coming months, I'll be recording more episodes on topics relating to this. And if there are lots of questions, I'll do another bonus episode where I respond to some of the more common queries. Please do get involved in the discussion, whether it's with a simple like, following the Napoleon Assist on your preferred podcast platform, adding a question in the forum, retweeting, or telling a friend. The podcast is now available on many platforms, Spotify and Anchor and Google Podcasts and Breaker and Pocket Casts and Radio Public. So if you can't access it on one of those platforms, I'm not entirely sure how else you can get hold of it. Um, it's free to listen to and you should be able to join many of those platforms without subscription fees. The plan is to get them up on the NapoleonicWars.net website, but that's dependent on a reliable broadband connection, which isn't a given at the moment. They will be there eventually, but just bear with me. Join the discussion by posting questions in the forum and chatting with others at www.thenapoleonicwars.net forward slash forum. You can also contact me directly via Twitter at ZWhiteHistory and remember to use the hashtag NapoleonAssist. I'll be back soon with that promised episode on the aftermath of Badahoff, 
But in the meantime, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care, my friends. Stay safe. Stay well. Be kind to one another. And as always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.